0: So um, just to remind us where we are in the story, so um, in chapter 11 we're told that there's a church founded in Antioch, which is kind of modern day Turkey, Um, and it's a church founded interestingly as a consequence of the um, martyrdom of Stephen. So Stephen is, you remember, Weeks and weeks ago, we, we talked about Stephen, um, who, was, who was killed, and then uh, some um, Christians were scattered because of that event, and some of them went to Antioch and founded a church, initially for Jews, um, but then it expanded out to include Gentiles too. So we have this church in Antioch, which is a combination of Jews and Gentiles. That's kind of the context. Um, and then as part of kind of Paul's initial missionary journeys with Barnabas, he, he visits Antioch and helps get them established, and then he goes back to them as well. So at the end of chapter 14, we're told that they sail back to Antioch. This is Paul and, and Barnabas. Um, and then they stayed there for a long time, um, kind of helping to establish that church. So that's kind of the scenario. That's where we are in the story. Um, and we, we, we think the council at Jerusalem is... is around kind of 40 BCE, so kind of 40 years um, later, uh, kind of post-Jesus. Um, so it, it's, it's a while. It's a while. Sometimes when you read Acts, it feels like everything happens in two weeks, but actually we're talking about decades. So this, this is kind of where we are. Um, so uh, chapter 15 is where we're kind of uh, joining the narrative. So it says, "'Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch "'and were teaching the believers.'" Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I think it's probably worth clarifying at this point because we're used to associating Pharisees from the Gospel um, in a certain way as people who um, don't didn't actually believe in Jesus. So these are Christians who have a kind of cultural um, connection or background in um, the kind of groups of Pharisees. So they may well have been Pharisees and then became Christians is the point. So these are Christians who have a kind of, I guess, a more um, traditional um, heritage or have a particular way of thinking about God and about the scriptures and about how human beings should behave. So I think that's important that we understand, because when we see Pharisees, we don't necessarily think Christians, but these are Christians who have that background, who are still holding on to some of the traditions and and kind of rituals of their Pharisaic background, even though they recognize Jesus as Messiah. That's kind of... That's that. Um, So that's what's going on. So they're saying, actually, you know, we still think that Gentiles need to be circumcised, i.e. they think in order to accept Jesus as a kind of Jewish Messiah, they have to kind of become Jewish first in order to access Jesus, is the way that they think. You kind of understand their thinking um, about why that process has to happen, because Jesus was Jewish and, and it was a fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, and so you have to kind of, you can't just go through the back door. You have to follow the process that they followed, is their logic. Um, So that's what they think. So the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And what he means by that is the law. Um, he's, he's saying, why are you reintroducing the law when that was always the problem in the first place, that we couldn't even keep the law, let alone Gentiles, it's ridiculous. Why are you doing this? You're making it really difficult, if not impossible, for them to, to kind of be legitimized in your eyes. No, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Um, I should clarify, because it's free time, as I've already established. Uh, this is James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother, possibly, of Jesus, not James the disciple. So James actually didn't believe in Jesus when he was alive. Um, he actually only came to believe in Jesus post-resurrection. He was there um, the day of Pentecost, so, and he was kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's the one who wrote the letter, James, but he's not the disciple um, who was with Jesus in the Gospels. Just to kind of clarify that, just in case you're not sure who James is, that's James. Um, So James, um, who has a different kind of authority related to Jesus and a leader in the church, um, he spoke up too. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, he actually says Simeon there, Simeon, and we'll come back to that in a moment. He refers to Peter as Simeon for a reason, and we'll come back to it. Simeon, or Simon, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And that's where we're going to stop. And we're going to (laughs) pray. Father God, we thank you for this scripture and Holy Spirit, we ask now that you will speak to us through it. Help us to understand it. Help us to see it. A fresh. Amen. So it's an interesting scripture. Thanks, Tim, um, which you can quite quickly kind of blast through and kind of say, okay, something about Jews and Gentiles that doesn't feel relevant anymore. It, I'm sure it was important at the time, but you know, let's get on to the other bits in Acts where there are miracles and things that feel more relevant. And I want to argue this morning or persuade you that this is a hugely relevant passage uh, to us as a community and to the church. Um, uh, in the world today. Um, psalm 133 is uh, a very, very short psalm, and you'll recognize it when I read it to you. It goes like this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers, or the people of God, live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is. It's like precious oil poured on the head Running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even for life forevermore. For there, in that place of unity, is where the Lord bestows his blessing, Psalm 133 says. It's a wonderful piece of poetry. And I, you know, developed my beard especially for this morning to help with the kind of visualization of that. Um, It's a wonderful piece of poetry. And, And that psalm, Psalm 133, is articulating a vision of unity amongst God's people, isn't it? It's saying, in the place of unity, there is blessing. It's this beautiful vision of what happens when people live together in harmony and they're God's people. But what it doesn't do, Psalm 133, is give you a guide about how to achieve that. You know, it sounds great. Yeah, I want a bit of that. But, you know, how do you actually go about doing it? But we're blessed in that actually Acts 15 acts as a kind of practical counterpoint To Psalm 133, and starts to give us some guidance about actually practically how do we dwell together in unity? Because it's something that we want. We don't just want to survive, we want to live under God's blessing, don't we? And we're told that if we live together in unity, we'll be blessed. So the question remains how do we achieve it? How do we achieve unity? Because the reality of the story of human beings, both in the scriptures and in our world, is that human beings are naturally inclined towards disunity. You notice that? In fact, the whole of the Old Testament is a story of disunity, factions, in groups and out groups, survival, selfishness. That is the natural inclination of the human heart. Pretty much from kind of Genesis 4 onwards, beginning with Cain and Abel, the story is disunity. You're either in in, or you are out. And that's kind of understandable because if your mode of living is about survival in a harsh environment, then it kind of instinctively makes sense to look after your own, doesn't it? It, it makes instinctive sense to look after your own. It makes instinctive sense to have an in-group and an out-group, to form tribes so that we can protect one another That's what you do if your goal is to survive. But that's not blessing. That's survival. You see the distinction? That's not the kind of life that Psalm 133 is talking about. 133 is talking about living as a community of blessing. Having real life. And actually, if we want that, we need to fight against our natural instincts and seek instead after living in unity with one another. That's the challenge for us. It's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. We're all a bit strange. Um, And our natural inclination is to distrust or to only trust certain people, particularly people who look and sound and seem Like us. That is the natural inclination of the human heart. It is a challenge. And so, our passage this morning, Acts 15, is really, really helpful. Because how did the early church deal with this? And the the council at Jerusalem is a kind of key moment. So, um, let's try and kind of learn from this this morning. That's my goal. (laughs) Uh, Let's try and walk away this morning with a few thoughts about how we might better pursue. Unity. So it's a refreshingly real and practical moment, I think, in the Scriptures. Acts fifteen. There's no kind of dramatic miracles here, and there's no blind people receiving sight. No one's raised from the dead. No one's eaten by worms. Um, There's no one being struck dead or anything like that, which are all these kind of dramatic things that happen in Acts. And yet, I'd like to suggest this, this morning that it's no less remarkable that in this moment, these people might gather together and find unity. Arguably, that's more of a miracle than somebody receiving their sight, I believe, that all these people might find unity over a difficult issue. I don't know if that's been your experience. I spend a lot of my time resolving conflicts between people. As a kind of leader in my my workplace, I do a lot of conflict management. It's really hard. It's really hard, and we could do a whole separate seminar about managing conflict. I'm not going to do that this morning, but there's advice in here for us. There's guidance, because it's really, really hard, and actually, the, the way that this group finds unity is nothing short of miraculous work of the Spirit in their lives, is my belief, and we should treat it in that way, rather than just some weird, boring meeting between some people talking about theology. It's more important than that. In fact the church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this moment. It would, it would have died a death, would have become a kind of Jewish faction, um, a kind of messianic movement, which, and we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this moment in scriptures. It's that important. So it's important we spend time. So the problem, Barnabas and Paul, they've been ministering, working in this thriving church in Antioch, um, and we've read all about that. And then some uh, Christians who have this kind of Pharisaic background, have visited the church and they started to preach that unless they're circumcised, they can't be proper Christians. They have to do the circumcision thing. Um, And even though Paul was himself a Pharisee, you know, he would fully understand the way that these people were thinking better than anybody else. He is strongly, strongly opposed to this teaching. For Paul, this teaching actually undermines the whole gospel, the whole doctrine of grace. It's that important. It's not just some ceremony. It is fundamental. It is a gospel that was necessary for him, a previous Pharisee, to become an apostle of Christ. It's that important to him. And we could spend a lot more time on that if you wanna do your diligence. You know, look in Romans, look in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes extensively elsewhere about what's at stake here. This isn't just about circumcision. This is about grace, This is about the gospel itself. He has such strength of feeling about this. It's fundamental. And the fact that he feels so strongly about it tells you something about the work of spirit in his life. Because he was a Pharisee. He would have held this view. And now he's so strongly against it. It's not, you see, just about kind of legalistic practice, this. Now, it has its roots in that. You can go back to Genesis 17 and you can see about how circumcision was given to Abraham in the first place as a sign of the covenant between God um, and him. Um, But it's not just about that. This is about heritage. This is about cultural identity. Circumcision is an outward sign to say we belong. We belong to this in-group. This is who we are. This is our heritage it's not just about the law it's about identity it's about conformity if you want to be part of our church you need to be like us and this is the test that you have to pass because you can't be like us unless you look like us do you see what's at stake do you see how contemporary this is things don't change do they you need to look like us in order to be part of our church Because they are afraid. If we let these Gentile types in, they're gonna spoil it. They're gonna spoil this thing that we've got going on. We've got this nice church in Jerusalem and everyone kind of gets along and we're all quite similar and we all look a bit similar and we've all got similar cultural heritage and we're quite comfortable with the way that we worship and the things that we say and the things that we do and we can share meals together without a problem and we've got it good. What we don't want is Paul bringing all these Gentile types And kind of stirring it all up. So, you know, I guess we have to have them in the church. So let's let's set some conditions down so we can tolerate their presence. You know, they might just they might not get it. They might not know our songs. They might talk during the sermon. They might not know the liturgy or where you stand where you do communion. They might sometimes use fruity language. They might have tattoos. They might not know that you always have to bring a quiche if there's a church, bring and share. (laughs) We don't really want those people, do we? Coming into our church and messing it up when we all know what's going on. You see the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) I'm not going to push it. I'll leave that with you. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the equivalent of that. If you're going to be part of our in-group, you better look like us and sound like us and do as we do. And it's James who has that brilliant word of challenge. He says, kind of obvious statement, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And you can substitute Gentiles to whoever the other is in your mind the non-churchy people. James says, we should not make it difficult for those people to turn to God. It's such a simple teaching, isn't it? But boy, is it tough. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a challenge in there for us this morning. We should not make it difficult for the other to turn to God, even if they're not like us. So, that's what's at stake for Paul. It's fundamental, That's what's at stake. So we should look at how this conflict is resolved, and if there's anything in here that will help us, because conflict is inevitable. The church is relatively young. You've got this mixing of people now, Jews and Gentiles. It's inevitable that there's going to be a clash of cultures, a clash of heritage, and some knotty problems are going to ensue. And what I love about the fact that Luke records all of this, it's not like here's a fairy tale about how the church got going and wasn't it brilliant and every moment was super powerful and great. No, they had problems just like we do and divisions and disagreements about this and that. And so that's why I love this thing. So on with it. I'm going to do this very quickly in three parts Very, very quickly. Paul and Barnabas do something that helps with this. Peter does something that helps with this. And James does something that helps with this. Okay, three people. Paul and Barnabas, I'm taking as a pair. Okay, here we go. Right, Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? Well, first of all, they don't compromise on something that they believe is fundamental to the gospel. It says that they stand in sharp dispute and debate. Okay, they won't back down. And the, the basic point here is... Unity doesn't just mean we're nice to each other the whole time, right? It doesn't just mean we're just nice. It's not conflict avoidance. That's not the same thing as unity and living together. We can't possibly live together if sometimes we're not brought into dispute with one another because if that never happens, it means we're not actually sharing our lives with one another. If we're all just putting on church face on a Sunday and everyone's nice and no one ever falls out, we're not actually living together because it's inevitable that we'll disagree, because we're all different. So let's notice that living together doesn't just mean being nice, okay? Paul was brought into sharp dispute and debate with these people. He challenged them. He challenged them. And you can read more about that in Galatians 2 and 3. If there's a fundamental problem that threatens unity, it needs to be called out. It needs to be called out. It needs to be debated. And if necessary, sharply, If that's the kind of threat that we have, because actually, if this is allowed, then the whole thing comes falling down. It's fundamental. And he's living out his own advice that he gives us in Ephesians 4. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, speaking the truth in love, is the phrase that he uses later, speaking the truth in love. And they traveled all the way to Jerusalem to help resolve this problem, because it was that important. Okay, it was that important because he knew there would be no blessing without unity, and there'd be no unity unless this thing was resolved. But it doesn't mean being a doormat. The other thing we should notice about Paul and Barnabas is the lengths that they're willing to go to to protect and champion the outsiders. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that on their journey back to Jerusalem, they told everybody about how wonderful this Gentile church was and how the spirit was moving and everyone was made glad and rejoiced because they were championing and celebrating these outsiders and saying, they're amazing, you should come and meet them. They're just such brilliant Christians. You should see what God's doing in their lives. I love the fact that he celebrates the other. Do you love that? That's not tolerance, is it? It's more than tolerance. That's celebrating the diverse tapestry of God's people, championing their different culture, championing the way that the Spirit is moving in their lives and saying, isn't this amazing that God is drawing all sorts of different people into our community? Isn't it great? We should celebrate. You see, it's the opposite, the opposite of what the other Pharisee Christians were trying to achieve. They told everybody. They championed their salvation and were encouraging to see this as a new movement of God that was something wonderful, not something to be afraid.